Hi everyone and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. Today we're going to be doing a, a video interview so you're going to be able to actually see our guest if you'd like or you can still listen via blog talk. Um, either way you can pass these along because I know our conversation is going to help you in terms of living with dementia if you're diagnosed or if you're caring for a loved one or a business professional. We're going to be talking with uh, Elvis Garden who really did some miraculous things with his own mother living with the disease and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But first I always like to just thank each and every one of you who are our listeners and our followers. You have spread the name of Alzheimer's Speaks around the world and I, for that I can't thank you enough. Um, as a daughter who had a mom who lived with dementia for 30 years, I was adamant about trying to make a difference and trying to connect everybody to all the resources, tools, and products that are out there that we just don't know about. And, uh, you know, when you get hit with dementia, you don't know what you don't know until you know you don't know it. <laughs> and, and so hopefully we're going to make that path a little bit, a little bit easier for you. I do want to just give a shout out to Dementia Action Alliance. They're having their second North America Conference um, this June, the 20th through the 22nd, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And you might want to check them out. You can go to DAA now for more information on that conference and all the other wonderful um, things that they provide as well. So let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. We have Elvis Garden with us, and he cared for his mother and really went the distance who was living with Alzheimer's. He actually moved back home and removed her from an assisted living community where she was at. And Elvis turned his mother's life around the best way he knew how. And he's going to tell us uh, exactly what he did and why he did it. His mother has since passed at the age of 90. But he has taken the knowledge of his journey and authored a book called Dimensions of Dementia, a journey about love and life between a mother and son. So welcome, Elvis. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing real good at this end. Um, Elvis, I want to start out with um, you telling a little bit about your mom's diagnosis. How long was she uh, living with dementia, and and how how did that affect you as a son? My mom was diagnosed with dementia at the very end of 2007, and I was not living at home at the time. She was living by herself, and once the doctor said that she would need 24-hour supervision. Um, I have three older siblings. They didn't step up to the plate. So I moved back home and did what I needed to do. So she was diagnosed. I moved home uh, the end of February in 2008. And she passed uh, in May 2009. Uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 2017. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that transition was for you to make that commitment to move back home? I mean, that's a, that's a big, big step for, for anyone. It was a very difficult decision to make, Lori, because my mom, uh, I grew up with a bipolar mom. So I endured all of that from a child into adulthood, in and out of psychiatric wards and you know on uh 
antipsychotic meds and mood stabilizers. So that was in and of itself a whole other book. When I thought I had to move back home, I wasn't happy because I had finally gotten my freedom and took off. You know, I was working in New York City full time. It wasn't something that I wanted to do at first because it was, I wasn't, Alzheimer's wasn't completely foreign to me because in college I had studied on Alzheimer's in our pathology class. So I was somewhat familiar with it, but um, when you're actually in the trenches with it and you actually see your loved one, especially your mother, and she's starting to slip and repeat things and um, leave things on the stove and, you know, things of that nature. And um, I would actually say that the very beginning, the onset of her uh, dementia was the worst part of it. If that makes any type of sense, because she was resisting it and she still thought she could do certain things that she had normally done, chores around the house, et cetera, et cetera. But she was losing her ability to do that. So that was very daunting to watch and to see her slipping slowly. I can totally relate to that because I, I remember my mom lived with the disease for 30 years. And in the beginning, I mean, it, it's just, I, I can't imagine how scared they are you know, to be noticing that things are changing and afraid to tell anybody about them because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to bring that to the spotlight. And then when the doctor starts talking about it, your son's moving home and people are, other people are noticing. It's one thing when you notice yourself, but it's another thing when other people start noticing it. And I'm sure they just feel like their whole world is starting to shrink in and where is this going to go? And is anybody going to support me through this? And am I going to lose my independence and my personhood? Is that kind of what you were, what you were seeing too? Well, it was, and I likened it to if there's something that I need to say and I can't think of what I was going to say, but for them it's insidious and it starts out little by little and then it grows to 12 hours, and then it grows to 24 hours. And before you know it, they're forgetting things that they want to say from their um, frontal lobe, you know, their short-term memory patterns. And so it was, it was really scary. And I didn't have the support of my siblings as promised. And um, it was a really rough road in the beginning. It was very frustrating. It was very frustrating. I can understand that. I had an older brother. I still have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, but I was the primary, you know, after my dad died. And I supported my dad through the process. And I think it was looked at for me, you know, well, you're the girl. You're supposed to do that and, and things. But, you know, we didn't have the dynamics of living with a bipolar mom either, where a lot of people just say, I can't, I can't do that. You know, that's not healthy for me to get back into that situation. And that must have weighed heavily on you. It really did. It, it, uh, because I dealt with a lot with her bipolar disorder. And um, I had my own demons and my own, I won't say psychosis, but I had my own 
things that I needed to work out within myself in therapy. And I felt like I didn't have a chance. She went from that. Her last nervous breakdown was in 2003. The doctors then said there was a prognosis of the possibility of dementia onset. So it was actually all the way back then, and she wasn't allowed to drive anymore. She didn't try to drive anymore. And so I had to drive 45 minutes to take care of her. And um, I'd come down and make her food. I'd you know, make her care packages in the freezer. She was still capable of microwaving things at that time. And I'd go grocery shopping for her. I'd come down and do her hair for church, you know, and just all those things, take her shopping, you know, pick out bras, everything. So um, I really became her caregiver. <sighs> Full on, I would say, in 2003. But I commuted back and forth, and I'd come sometimes on the weekends and stay with her. Um, and in two, by 2007 it started to progress and I started to notice things when I would come home to visit. And um, it's so insidious because, and I use that word again because it was short, sort of short-circuited. It wasn't just full on, I can't remember anything, I'm repeating everything that I'm saying. It was very short-circuited. It was, it was, it was really, it was, it was a big decision that I had to make and I had to break my lease when I did that. I mean, at that point, I think in school, I learned that bipolar disorder is a cycle of events. And when, when they stop taking their medication, it's just part of the, the cycle. I thought my mom was using emotional blackmail to keep me near and dear. So I had resentments about the bipolar disorder until I went to school in college. That's when I learned that it was part of the cycles. So when I moved back home in the winter of 2008, it was, I kind of felt empathy and compassion for her because I knew she was much older at this point and she really couldn't help herself. And so it kind of turned into a labor of love early on. And I just dove into it. I hired, I hired some uh, um, friends because mom was private and I was private. And it was during the beginning of the recession. And I had a couple of good friends that she trusted uh, who were out of work. So I would pay them to watch her and I would make her meals and everything. And uh, I would go to work in New York City. We lived in New Jersey, in central New Jersey at the time. Um, and um, it really took some major adjustments on my part very quickly. Well, I, I, can, I can just imagine that. It was nice that you had friends to be able to, to help out and, and to be able to support you through that. Now, did you keep her at home the whole time? I kept her at home for as long as I could, for as long as it was safe. Um, you know, because I would, I would be in the middle of the shift at work and get a phone call from my neighbor that my mom had locked herself out. At the time she was capable of, I, I enrolled her in daycare, adult daycare. 
So during the day, she was at adult daycare. Someone would be there at the house when she got off the bus and she knew how to come into the house. In the morning, I got her up, got her ready. She was still able to bathe at that time on her own. I would pick her clothes out, get her dressed, get her nice and pretty and put her on the van and she would go to adult daycare. And uh, she would get home at about three in the afternoon and I didn't get home from work until about 9.30 at night. So I had someone there in that gap of time. Um, she, uh, she, was, she was able to do that, but then she would try to cook for me because she thought I was her husband. She thought I was my dad. So she would try to cook and uh, it was a nightmare. And uh, you know, eventually she began to lose her key at daycare. So she would wait at my neighbors upstairs and sometimes I would have to leave work early and drive back to New Jersey to let her in and, you know, just be there with her. Um, and then other times, the, the uh, people I had caring for her while I was working, they had a key as well. So it was, uh, it was quite, quite an experience. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I like, you, like that you said was you said, I, I kept her home as long as it was safe. And a lot of people don't put that safety into the equation. And it's so critical because it has to be not only safe for, for them, but for you as well. And there's so many different levels of safety. Um, so when, when you felt that it wasn't safe anymore, can you talk about um, how you went about picking a place and what happened once she moved? Mom and I always had this pact that I would never put her in a nursing home or anything like that. However, I have a cousin who's a CNA and my aunt lives in North Carolina and both of them would occasionally warn me that if anything happened to her, I would be liable for it. And once she began to leave things burning on the stove and then once the gas was on and the neighbor smelled gas and called the fire department, once she began doing things like that, she wasn't a wanderer. Only once did she wander, twice. Once it got to that point, and I was just worn out at this point because I didn't know how long this would go on. I mean, your mom had, you know, dementia for 30 years. I can't imagine. And, you know, I had other friends who had parents who were in their 90s and had had it for 15 years. So I thought, wait a minute, I, I just got the dream job of my life. I don't know how long this is going to go on, and I don't know how safe this is. I, you know, I'd gotten the child uh, knob, uh, safety knobs from Kids R Us or Babies R Us. And it just got to a point where I had to really, really pray about it and make a strong decision and stick to that decision. So it took me well over a year to find a place. I was so protective of her. And I had worked in a nursing home when I was in high school. So I knew some of the horrors of nursing homes. And I would go to them, and I advise this to anyone, go when they don't expect you to show up because that's when you really see the goings on in there. So none of the places were good enough. And then I struck a deal with a place in Cranford, New Jersey, 
and uh, I got all the paperwork ready. I got the power of attorney ready, the uh, advanced directive, and um, proceeded with that. And so that was in, that was actually September 1st, 2010. So I was with her for a good two and a half years at home. And um, it was the hardest day of my life because I had to prep her for it and just tell her, Mom, what do you think about being around people that you can have fun with, that you can... And she's like, well, I want to be with you. And um, that cut like a knife. And I'll never forget the morning that I was bringing her in. We went to breakfast and we were at the diner and she was in such a cheerful mood and I just felt so guilty that I was tricking her. And I just remember sitting there just staring in a daze at her as she was so bubbly. My mom was a spitfire. She was so spunky. Everyone loved her all the way up till the end. And um, she was just so happy and I knew what I was about to do. And we went to the facility and I checked her and I admitted her. And as soon as we walked in, she looks around. They had, it was a beautiful place. They had uh, aquariums and birds and fish and all through the corridors. And she walks in and goes, this is great. And I went, oh God, thank you. And I just like exhaled. And so I had to, uh, because she followed me like a Siamese cat. So I had to trick her into going with one of the CNAs so I could dash out the door. And that was the most painful time for me. I just broke down and just wailed in the parking lot. I couldn't believe my world was not going to be the same. We were not going to be together again. So I thought, and that, that devastated me. It's a hard moment in time when you, when you make that decision, no matter how right you know you are, that this is really the best decision that's available to you. Now, what happened once she was there, and how were you reunited again? Why don't you get into the story of, of what happened? So uh, she was there. She enjoyed herself there. I was there all the time. Um, I would take her out. We would go out and do things. And um, she never once complained about me putting her in there. And the irony of it is mom developed a thrombosis in the back of her knee. It was a clot. And what I had learned was that they weren't giving her the physical activity that they proclaimed or professed that they give them nine and a half back, uh, activity hours. So I went on a work trip and I came back a week later and her foot was swollen, her ankle was swollen, her leg was swollen. So I insisted that they get an x-ray tech in there. And um, turns out she had a clot. They couldn't remove it because she was anemic. So they gave her a transfusion. She was in the hospital for about two weeks. And the doctor was going to release her back into the assisted living facility. And I said, oh, no, you're not. She's got to have physical therapy. So when uh, I insisted on that, that's when he put her in rehab. So at this point, I really believe in my heart of hearts, even though I've inquired about it 
And it's been said to me that it's not possible. I don't believe it. She was vocal up until the blood transfusion. I almost want to say that they gave her too many CCs at one time because she went into a vegetative state and dysphagia set in. She went into a very vegetative state and it was very frightening. It was almost as if she had, a, had suffered a mini stroke or something. So in rehab, she was out of it. The doctors and the physical therapist, the uh, social worker, and the, uh, the head of phys the physical therapy department of rehab, they were all on a panel and I was sitting across from them and they called me in to let me know that mom was entering advanced stages of Alzheimer's and that she was never going to walk again and she was too combative and they couldn't work with her in physical therapy. And I said, that's bull. She was just dancing to James Brown last month. No way. And so they looked at each other and they looked at me tongue in cheek and said, well, if you think you could do better, you can come in. And I said, okay, what time do you open? And they looked at each other like, is he serious? And uh, they canceled on me the first two days. The third day I went in, I went up to her room. I said, mom, you're 84 now. You've lived a long, incredible life. Do you want to live or do you want to die? And she looked at me with a frail voice and she got out, I want to live. And I said, okay, well then do as I say, work with me and you'll live. And I wheeled her downstairs to physical therapy and she was already atrophied and her feet were curled in like someone with cerebral palsy. And um, I had to teach the physical therapist how to get her out of the wheelchair and get her to walk down the hall to me. And that was the beginning of her walking and then we did cognizance tests with cones and different things and balls. And um, before I knew it, she was ready to go back to living and from that point, I just kept walking with her, walking with her, taught her how to walk with a walker. And then she was like, Forrest Gump, you couldn't find her. I'd go to the facility. I'm like, where's my mom? They're like, oh, she's walking around somewhere. And she even went to a cane at that point. So I would go and I would see her at the end of this long corridor that her room was on. And she'd be looking out the window. And I would say to her, what are you doing, mom? She's like, I would call her, hey, lady. Hey, lady, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm going home. I'm going home. And I'm like, and she was literally looking into the parking lot as if she was waiting for a car to pick her up and bring her home. Unbeknownst to me that I would actually be bringing her home on December 15, 2013 to live with me. So it was incredible. Even that, that decision, because I was free once she was in assisted living, I, you know, I had a level of freedom, even though I was there all the time. But I still, I couldn't sleep at night. My conscience was bothering me. And something just laid on my heart. And I, I, I just said, you know, I think I can do better than them. I think I can really do better than them at the facility. And so I really thought about it long and hard, spoke with her social worker at the uh, community mental health center that I took her to because she was still going there for visits and blood work and um, he didn't think it was a good idea and he tried to talk me out of it he said people usually do that and within six months they're they're you know pulling their hair out and they can't get a bed again at the, at the facility and I said well it's a chance I'm gonna have to take I thought about it already 
And um, I brought her home. I brought her home with me on December 13th, December 15th, 2013. And in 11 days, I had her off 34 pills a day that they were pumping her with. I did a sort of natural chelation therapy. I juiced, I, you know, had her juicing. and That's incredible. When you, when you took her off the medications, did you work with the doctor in terms of pulling her off, or did you just make those decisions yourself? Or? I made those decisions myself because what happened was her cholesterol was high at one point, and the doctor, the staff doctor at the facility was awful. And he, was, he still had her on blood thinners, and he had her on a, an iron pill that was making her terribly constipated. And I hinted around with her social worker, and I said, well, listen, about a year ago, two years ago, you asked if I wanted to take her off of the uh, carbamazepine because the, and the Tegretol because the dosage was so low. And they started her on Alzheimer's medication. But she was on those. And um, he said, well, she could have a reaction. I don't know if that's a good idea. But I had already, by that point, actually, she was home with me. And I had already taken her off of them. I didn't wean her off of anything. Which, in hindsight, it probably would have been the better thing to do. But I had studied those medications. And I knew that she was on such a low dosage of them that it wasn't really going to make a difference. She was so happy to be home that it was just mind-boggling how happy she was. She knew she was home. I mean, I typically don't ever recommend someone to take somebody off their medications without a, a doctor's um, advice, but I know it's, you know, it's one of those situations. I hear about people doing it all, all the time with that. And when you're dealing with that many medications, um, that can get overwhelming as well. Um, some of our audience members might be interested in knowing what your background is in terms of schooling, um, that, that you, you know, knew how to, you know, get your mom up and moving again and things like that. So if you could share that, that might be helpful for some. I uh, went to school at the Swedish Institute College of Allied Health Sciences and Eastern Medicine in New York City. And I studied massage therapy there in Eastern Chinese medicine. And as a result of that, I graduated into different CEUs and different classes, um, prenatal, perinatal. I've helped midwives deliver babies. Um, and working with doctors and physical therapists and chiropractors, I learned a lot as well. So over the years, that was 13 years. Over the years, I um, developed quite a craft. So I would work on her, um, and I would, um, I taught her how to walk up and down flights of stairs again. I did physical therapy on her to the point where she was spry again. She was dancing. She was, at the age of 86, she was on a rebounder, bouncing in the living room, you know, and... Uh, that was, that was some amazing feat, I have to say. Let's talk a, a little bit more. You've got, her, you've got her at home, and she's juicing. What did she think about the juicing? Did, was that something that she liked, or did she just trust you? Oh, she loved it. And social media used to just, just stare in awe. I would have these huge mason jars, and I would 
make these amazing juices with all sorts of uh, superfoods, green foods and things like that, blend them up. And she would take that mason jar down like the bunny rabbit on the quick commercial, the quick chocolate milk commercial. She would drink it literally within eight to 10 minutes. And she loved them and she had a great appetite. And I'm also a vegan chef. So she, uh, she enjoyed the foods that I made her. And um, I put her on a plant-based diet. I took her off dairy products um, because I knew that she was lactose intolerant. And that was another thing the facility was doing behind my back. They were feeding her dairy products and she was lactose intolerant heavily. And so uh, once I began to change her diet and we began to go for walks as the weather warmed up, she just sprouted like a spring tulip. I've seen some videos of her dancing and kind of shimmying around and, and things. <laughs> yeah, which is, is always fun. I know I, with my own mom, I always got so much joy seeing those, seeing those moments. Um, did you, when you're, you know, as your mom then progressed, you, you, you know, kind of got her better and stuff. Did she, did she progress backwards again? And another did. And and that was the interesting thing because people watched, social media watched. They saw people who had been following me uh, as early as 2011, 2012, knew that I was contemplating taking her out of there, bringing her to live with me because I didn't like what was going on with her. The oddest thing was that I know people say that it can't be done. But I'm here to tell you that we arrested the dementia. She didn't progress past that point. And she was very sharp. I would do things with her to keep her in the present. Like I had a little sponge ball and I would throw it at her. And she would always catch it and throw it back. Or she'd fake as though she was going to throw it at me. And then she'd throw it, you know. And I just did all those different types of things to keep her in the moment. And I would keep her in touch with one of her childhood cousins. They were the same age. And um, anything and everything that I could do to keep her in the moment is what I did. We would go to the grocery store and she liked to push the shopping cart. So I would do these obstacle courses in the aisles and make a U-turn and a beeline. And she would never take anything out. She would never knock anything over. She was great. And um, it really, I kept her present. I kept her in the moment all the time and she knew who I was. At this point, she wasn't calling me. She would say that some man lived in the house with us. Not when I brought her home from assisted living, but prior when I first moved home to her place. And she thought this man was in the house aside from myself and it was just she and I. So um, that stopped. She knew who I was. She would say my name and for the first, I'll have to say for the first eight months, I had a king-size bed. For the first eight months, I let her sleep in bed with me because I wanted that connection and I wanted her to feel like she was being integrated back into a home. And I had no problems with that. She was my baby girl. So I just, you know, we, we, she was, oh, she was so happy. I can just see her smile. It just lit up the room and um that went on for some time and then 2015 in may 
we moved to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, because she was getting so strong with the walking. And I said, well, I'm going to need like a sprawling ranch, not this, you know, railroad apartment. She needs room to walk around in the house when we're not out and about because it's hot down. So I found a great place that was perfect for her with an open floor, and she enjoyed every minute of it. It was wonderful. It was really, really good. Well, you know, one of the things that I think you did so well with this was you you kept her in relationship. You lived in her world. You kept her present and active. So she felt like she belonged. You know, she had purpose. And so often, I think many of us who are caring we forget about that element because we're so task oriented on doing things, but we're not always reading the signs like you read in terms of what brings them joy, what's pulling them out. And you really seem to have built on that along with, you know, the dietary. Now in your book, what can people expect to find in your book? Um, do you have recipes? Do you, you know, how, how was it written? Some people write in a journal format. Other people write in different, different ways. What can they find in your book? My book has a lot of rabbit holes. So you'll find in the book, in some areas I talk in present tense. In some areas I speak in past tense. In other areas I'll speak in a, in a sort of a journal fashion. So it's kind of a, a collage of, of different writing styles. Um, I do speak about a little bit about her bipolar disorder, and then I do speak about um, what it was like in the beginning, um, what I went through with the doctors, what I went through in legal battles with my older siblings. Um, um, I do speak about her only sundowning, I think, twice. She's only sundown twice. And... Um, I speak about some of the nutritional things that I did, but I don't give recipes in there. I have another book that I'm working on that I had to put the pen down for a while because the emotional um, void of losing her kind of took me out of my writer's mode. I was able to write this book. I wrote 28 chapters in two weeks once I had a shift. By going, I had to go back to New Jersey to where we lived and walk through the neighborhood, and I just broke down. It was cathartic, and I purged. And I was staying with a friend at the time, and I literally just sat down and wrote 28 chapters in two weeks. And um, you can find a lot of information, things that I experienced with the medical industry, um, the way that I took control at the hospitals, because towards the end, she developed two stage four ulcers on her right foot. And so um, I got them to debride that. They wanted to amputate her leg. And I said, no way, no how. Um, you're not going to do that to her now. She's 89 years old. Debride it, and I'll take care of it. And in three weeks, it was granulated. I used colloidal silver and all sorts of things. And the uh, cardiovascular surgeon that I used is one of the best in the country. He owns half the hospital she was in. And he fist bumped me, and he said, I've never seen such beautiful scars heal so fast. And... Um, so we did that, and um, I, um, I talk about that. I talk about some of the run-ins I had with certain doctors who were elder discriminatory. They just don't 
really care once you pass 65 if you can't speak for yourself. If you can't advocate for, advocate for yourself, then you're really in trouble because they'll give you anything. They'll tell you anything. They didn't even tell us that she had stage three at the time, kidney disease. And that was something insidious that would have happened as early on as 2005, 2006, 2007. She was doing so well. My mom didn't even so much as catch a cold. There was a time or two where she uh, had, um, uh, what's it called? Not cellulitis. Um, oh, it's almost like gout. Um, uh, I can't think of it. It escapes me now. Sorry to this. It's a CE, so cellulitis or something. I can't think of it. And her hands would swell. And even with that, I took her to urgent care, and they didn't know what to do. I brought her home and did some remedies on her, which I do share in my book. Um, they were just in essential oils, and I put socks on her hands uh, so she wouldn't rub them the way that she would. And the next day, they were healed. You know, So there were a lot of different homeopathic things that I did for my mom that um, I do share in my book. But I will share the recipes I I'm almost finished with the book. It's called uh, Decadent Vegan. And those are all the recipes that I used. And I also have a mini recipe book that is geared towards people with kidney failure who uh, can't take in um, more than, say, 2,000 milligrams of potassium because their kidneys won't flush it. Well, that that is, is very helpful. I think... You know, you're you're so honest about the story, you know, the good, the bad, the you know, the just that emotional ro- roller coaster, the the stories of family, you know, not always getting along. And most families they have their moments, you know, some some are are constant and others are just moments, but that's a frustrating, draining, draining time. How how did your family respond to your book? We have severed relationships. My three oldest siblings didn't come to their mom's funeral. So uh, that was a matter of, I still really don't know till this day, until this day. Um, And I just lost a brother, um, as I think you know, uh, last week to uh, multiple myeloma. And so there was no closure. They just didn't come because she didn't have anything to leave them. As a result of that, and they left me holding the bag like they always pretty much did. Um, I had to bury her alone. My niece was with me. Um, she was a godsend. My mom's, uh, she has, my mom had four granddaughters, but only one of them, my niece Tanika, um, was there for my mom all the way to the end. But it was, it was, it was disheartening and it was, I was angry with them. I was very resentful towards them because they knew that I had really gotten the brunt of her bipolar years and then to stick me with this. But at this point, it was such a labor of love that I just, I didn't care if I didn't sleep. I mean, I'd go to the gym when I could or I, you know, I found my ways of relaxing and I was eating such healthy foods that it kept my energy up because usually the caregiver is the first one to go out, you know, we break down. And if we break down, 
the whole ship is going to sink. It seems like even though, you know, growing up was difficult with having your mom be bipolar and stuff and you, you stepping up, you really got the gifts of that relationship and were able to reframe it. And I know, I, you know, my two brothers weren't very present either. It didn't hit me until one time we were talking and I'll never forget, I was sharing stories with them. And they're like, well, where'd you get the stories? And it just hit me so hard, like I was there. And then uh, instead of being angry and frustrated with them, I just felt this great sadness because they missed all of that. And that was their choice. And, you know, and I had just stopped trying to pull them in and thought I have to focus my energies to do what I'm doing and this is this is sidetracking me. This great sadness for them for missing out because I thought it was one of the biggest gifts, if not the biggest gift I'll ever receive in my life. Well, the time that we had, I gave my mom the most incredible bucket list she never could have expected. And we, I mean, we drove to Asheville together you know, for our family reunion, we, we, we'd go all over the place. She loved to ride. She loved cars. And I had a Jeep. She loved my Jeep. And um, we really had a ball. We really, I had more fun with my mom in her end years than I think I did growing up. We had a blast. And I knew she was happy. She just had a permanent grin every day. And I did regret for them that they missed out on that because they're not in any of those pictures. They're not in any of those videos. They never came to see her. They called Adult Protective Services on me three times, not once, not twice, but three times, saying I was abusing their mother when they didn't even know her favorite color. They hadn't seen her in years. So it was, it was, it was, uh, it was sad for them because what she gave me, money could never buy. I mean, the love, the integrity, the, the commitment, the unconditional love, the humility, um, the humility of having to clean and change my mom as though she was my infant baby every day, you know? And, and um, being able to just bear down and do the dance with her and just let her lead. You know, as long as it was safe, I just let her lead. If she said, oh, I want to walk on the moon today, I'd say, oh, is there room for me too? And she says, sure. You know, and um, she was happy. She was, she was just such a very happy, it was like she rebirthed in that, in that uh, uh, four years that I had her with me. It was, it was the most beautiful thing. She really didn't suffer long at all. I, I can totally relate to that. I, um, I just think it was, you know, again, such a gift. And to me, it was almost when I try to describe, uh, you know, my relationship with my mom, I, I tell people it was almost like a religious experience because yes. you, you don't know how deep you can love and how, how unconditional in the different levels right. that are there. You know, you think unconditional love is, you know, you love your child and, you know, you don't think anything can beat that, but 
you know, over the years, you, you know, that changes too. And, you know, when you go through that whole end of life journey, I mean, there's just another level and another level and you don't need words. You can just be calm and present and comfortable in silence to always be accepted to to be able to give that gift of acceptance because you're not judging anymore you're just walking on the moon with your mom towards the end um, i had her put her had to put her on in home hospital and um one night she began to hemorrhage and i called the hospice nurse and she came over and um they didn't want me to clean her up they wanted to see where it was coming from and um, it was awful. It was those types of things were the traumatic experiences. The hemorrhaging was traumatic. Uh, she fainted and went unconscious a couple times. Those were the times I thought I was, this was it. And so one night, it was actually early in the morning, about 4.30 in the morning, I went in to check on her and she had hemorrhaged very badly. And at this point I was only giving her, I think I was feeding her with the peg tube and uh, she wasn't on morphine yet. And so the nurse comes over and um, she's on the other side, we're on either side of mom's hospital bed in her room. And I looked at her and I said, you hospice nurses are angels in human suits. You're not fooling me. I see you. They're, they're awesome. They were incredible. And so uh, she looked at me and she said, you're one to talk. And I said, excuse me? And she said, look, when my granddaddy was going through and going through this and at the stage your mama's at, there were seven of us that took care of him and we couldn't handle it. Three of us were nurses and you're doing this all by yourself. You're the angel. And that's when it really impacted me. Like, wow, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like, will I recover from this, you know? And, um, I'm still trying to recover. It's hard after you, you you put so much into that relationship and then when they're gone, I know I just felt lost. This huge void. After the funeral, I just collapsed. I went to Calgary, Alberta to stay with a friend for two weeks. I just couldn't even be in the house anymore. And matters worse, we were renting the house. I knew that the landlord was selling the house at a certain date, and we had to be out by May 31st. She passes on May 11th, so you can imagine the hospital visits, the ambulance uh, rides and all that to the hospital prior to her passing. And then I buried her on the 17th of May. And in doing that, I had two weeks to pack up a 12-room house and get out. Oh, my gosh. That's... You can't imagine. You can't imagine. And I mean, I really, really... Her, her gravestone says, it is well with my soul on it. She loved to sing that song. And I love to sing that song. And when I was done, it was always well with my soul. It was all well. When I took her dress to the funeral home, my niece was down with her mom, and uh, she had gone in her room to gather up, you know, earrings, things, makeup. And um, I knew which dress I wanted to bury her in. We get to the funeral home and um, I go to hand him the dress and the bag of makeup. And he said, what's this? And I said, it's makeup. And he said, oh, she won't need this. 
He said, it looks like someone poured liquid gold all over her body. She doesn't even have a pressure sore. God has a special place for you in heaven. And those types of vindications was all I really needed to hear. Because I already knew mom was proud of me to the very end. You know, the last three days I was giving her morphine and I'd have Ella Fitzgerald or Otis Redding playing in the room. And she was, her body was breaking down. I couldn't turn her anymore. And she literally, she was such a clown. She literally did her shimmy shake with one shoulder and winked her eye like, I got this, we got this. And I, I just looked, I was just in tears. I just tears of joy and pain is bittersweet. But she was very, she knew who I was to the end. And I mean, even in her hospital bed, I kept it on an incline. Um, and I began to sing Minnie Ripperton's song, Loving You, to her. And she literally, with all the strength that she had, she sat up as much as she could and started humming it back to me, mimicking. That was very difficult to hold back to tears. I had to finish up and leave the room and just go ball. Wow. Wow. What a, what a journey. I, I thank you so much for sharing your, you know, your story. I, I think it'll help a lot of people. I, I think so many of us feel alone and misunderstood, especially when we don't have family supporting us. Um, it can be a, a really, really difficult, difficult thing to do. Um, now people can get a, um, a signed uh, autographed uh, copy of your book just by going to your website, dimensionsofdementia.com. Um, That's dimensionsofdementia.com. Um, or they can email you as well, and both are listed um, on, the, on the radio page and blog. We've got that all over. Well, thank you again for your time with us today. And um, I, I really enjoyed your book and enjoyed this conversation, as I know our listeners will as well. So thank you, Elvis, for, for all you did, not only for your mom, but for so many others. Um, and, it, you know, it empowers, I think, all of us to hear other people's stories. You know, it gets, it gets us to believe that we can make a difference and we can try something different and kind of follow that gut and lead us forward. So again, thank you so much. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey go a lot easier.